never say die! Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 159 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am not Pat. (laughs) I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And we're talking about uh, women creators in comics this week. And every joke I could come up with for this part was both offensive and not funny. So just pretend I said something about comics in the kitchen and send me angry tweets and emails. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a second. I'm on it. Pat sounds like he has breasts. He does. Well, he does. I mean, more, more often, I mean like, he, like he's supposed to. Oh. We have a Martha in, in the house today. You do. Everyone, hello. Say hello to uh, Martha. Hi, Martha. <laughs> Great. Hello, everybody. Yes, this uh, is... I'm Martha, and the 40 Going On 14 guys have been generous enough to let me be their guest this week. Yeah, she is our resident expert on female comic editors, artists, and other assorted uh, significant females in comics. And uh, she is replacing Patrick this time around. So uh, in order to make sure that she is ready to fill those shoes, we had her uh, smoke three bowls. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an experience. Yes, and she ate an entire <laughs> tray of uh, pot brownies. And she's still not as stoned as Pat normally is when he's on the show. Um, yeah, oh, but so, that was just like my warm up, right? Oh yeah, because I mean, you, you got to stretch before running a marathon. Yeah, so. <laughs> you, you got to keep going for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the show. So because you know, well, if you're looking for a warm up, <laughs> nice. You can all, yes, yeah, yeah. You can always uh, warm yourself up by listening to some awesome podcasts on the Podcast Collective. Really, Josh? What sort of podcast do they have there? Uh, in addition to us, they've got the Bad Parenting Podcast, On the Block, No Hope for Humanity, The Coffin Joe Cast, Joel's Own, The Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, Dating Baggage, The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy, I Am Salt Lake, Mint Inbox Cast, Tales from the Hard Side, The Dog and Deuce Show, The Empty Rant Podcast, and The Rad Dad Radio Hour. You know what? I listen when editing, well, and when editing the show with Scott the Pool Boy, that was certainly an experience. That was interesting, because next time, I think we should definitely have, if we're going to have somebody who's on acid doing the show as a guest. <laughs> uh, we, that's just Scott. Yeah, my favorite was his fun facts about movies he hadn't seen. <laughs> it's, no, I think I think the part I laughed the most at is at the very end where he's like, you know, I hate to tell you guys, but I got a lot of my info from my MDB. I haven't seen any of these movies. <laughs> so, but yeah, hey, uh, Josh, if somebody's looking for some of our older stuff, where would they find it? Oh, well, you can always check out our archives on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher. Our full archives are always up on TalkShoe, and you can check us out on Google Play Podcasts. Right, and if you're uh, hanging out tomorrow at noon, you can hear our latest show on Geek Life Radio on a stream. <laughs> they don't know it's Friday. <laughs> Oh, crap, it is Friday. <laughs> yeah, so it would be tomorrow, but that would be Saturdays at noon. <laughs> Saturdays at noon on Geek Life Radio, if you're lis- if you're recording this on Thursday. Right. Which <laughs> yeah, we- someone's listening to us on a Wednesday. Oh, I'll just check them out tomorrow at noon. <laughs> That's what Mike said. <laughs> yeah, so if it's Thursday, it's going to be on Saturday. If it's Friday, it's still going to be on Saturday. Right. So... 
Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, feel free to give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. And of course, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at 40go14 or shoot us an email at 40go14 at gmail.com. Right. Well, we don't have any voicemails this time, but we do have an email from a familiar voice. I'm going to try and do that voice right now. Joel, I've been listening to your podcast for almost 10 years now. One of the phrases I've heard you say more than almost any other is, I'll try anything twice. So tell us again how many times you've watched The Big Lebowski. Ducks to the front, Tommy the Duck. P.S. Yes, I'm aware that you could say the same thing about me to numerous movies, but come on, it's The Big Lebowski. I was not aware that Tommy the Duck was a New York taxi driver. (laughs) He is in my head. (laughs) So, Joel, come on. How many times have you seen Big Lebowski? Well, Tommy, I've seen Big Lebowski (laughs) once so far. But I'm planning on sometime in the future watching it again. Why don't you watch it tonight, Joel? I am so verklempt right now. Who said that? (laughs) There's voices in my head. (laughs) That was what? Who is that guy? That's background Johnny or background... Oh, background Phil. Back- background Phil. Tommy the Duck's right, Joel. You need to watch Big Lebowski some more. Uh, it's catching uh, up to me. You gotta watch it, man. How can you not love that movie? Because he's uh, only seen it once, and everybody except I loved it the first time, but apparently most people don't like it the first time. Here's I... a quick side note about this whole you have to see a movie more than once to appreciate it. There are too many good I, I think there are too many movies in the world. I'm kind of on Joel's side. If I watch a movie and I don't like it, I don't immediately think, I should watch that again because maybe I missed something. So I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm not a Coen Brothers fan. <laughs> See, I agree with a lot of directors, but I think especially with the Coens and David Lynch, you almost can't possibly get everything on the first try. Yes, and with David Lynch, maybe not on the third or fourth. Well, I think. Well, there's some. There's a difference between. Sorry, sorry, Mike. There's Keep a difference on. between not getting everything on the first go, and saying you need to watch it more than once to enjoy watching it. Fair point. See, yeah, I'm not watching uh, uh, Transmorphers a second time. <laughs> yeah. God, there's a. Call not back. even to get the deep subtleties in storytelling. <laughs> uh, well, now I've got to watch it a second time. I think I think especially with David Lynch, there's a there's a moment of what the hell did I just see? You know, that you're like, wait, did that just happen the way I thought it happened? And then you're like, you know what, maybe I need to rest, have a meal, <laughs> to have a drink, and then I'll come back to this with a fresh mind, and then you watch um what was the one with um Nick Cage with the Wild at Heart? Wild, yeah, yeah. You, then you come back to Wild at Heart and you're like, No, that's pretty much what I just watched. Wild at Heart still has one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema. Ooh, can I guess? Let me. You guess. can, but you'll be wrong. Oh, because I know that... what you're going to guess. <laughs> Shit! Is it him walking down the street, getting surrounded by the gang? Actually, you are correct. Hell yeah! <laughs> oh, such a great scene. He knows they're going to kick the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. He knows he can't get away. He knows he ends up in the hospital. So he just looks at all of them. What do you faggots want? <laughs> That I just is. love it. it. It's like at the beginning of Way of the Gun. Mm-hmm. 
Same kind of thing. It's like you you know you're going to get your butt kicked, so may as well do it with style. Right. That's exactly <laughs> it. I love that. I love that part too. Just because, and especially because that the street is completely empty before he starts walking down, and they just come out of nowhere. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, about that time. Oh, it's it is absolutely the, about that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. And spoilers. <laughs> All right, so uh, this week we are going with September 23rd, 1993. That is the uh, date that Karen Berger heads up DC's Vertigo line. Such a great line. Oh. <sighs> I yeah, f- and it is actually this week in the year she did that. So it's everything in this week in 1993. Yeah, I want to start talking about her her lineup for Vertigo, but I, I want to wait because... Yeah, we'll get there. All right. Okay, so Joel what? has music. I'm just going to say real quick, I read the shit out of Ragman. Anyway. We don't have uh, time to number- say that. Joel has music. <laughs> the number one song in the land is Dream Lover by Mariah Carey and her fleet of balloons. Um, on September 23rd, <laughs> I don't know quite what I meant by that. I think I meant her voice, but I <laughs> turned out I was talking about her boobs. Oh, <laughs> okay. I thought you were confusing her with Nina. <laughs> They're luff balloons. On night, the night of t- September 23rd, 1993, Ian Stewart Donaldson was in a fatal car crash in Derbyshire at the age of 36. Donaldson was better known as Ian Stewart, a white supremacist musician from Pultan Left. Lancashire. He was the frontman of Screwdriver, a British punk band, which he rebranded as a white power pop. pop bad, bad. I'm having a pat moment as a white power rock band. Thank you. Donaldson also became leader of two other bands, the Klansmen, a rockabilly band, and White Diamond, a hard rock heavy metal band. You know, uh, with all of the racism and white power in there, the thing that stuck out to me most is that Pat switched it up on us. Yes, he started he it off with start, the death. Yeah, instead of saying Ian, Ian Stewart Donaldson, a punk rock white supremacist, and uh, I, I did not realize he was going to be killed right away. Yeah, he totally switched it up. Yep. He threw us off. Bastard. Uh, on September 25th, Madonna starts the Girly Show World Tour in London, England. Did you just say England? Well, I was going to say, you're going with England there? I love London, England. I got to say it like, uh, uh, like nobody else. Portrayal of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis in uh, <laughs> Falls of Fire. Okay. Totally pulled that this? out. Josh, what about movies? Movies. Movies released this week include the number one movie, The Good Son, followed by The Program, and Dazed and Confused. Is The Good Son the one with the kid from uh, uh, the Bruce Willis ghost movie? I wouldn't think so, considering this was 1993, and he'd be, like, negative a lot. Oh. This is uh, one with Macaulay Culkin and Elijah Wood. Oh, okay. Now, okay. What am I thinking? It's kind of a horror movie-ish, sort of. You're- yeah, I don't think I've ever seen this. I, uh, He's thinking of The Sixth Sense. Yeah, but there was one, okay, The Good Son. Oh, Macaulay Culkin. Huh. Where he plays evil. There's a stretch for him. And Elijah Wood is... Uh, his counterpart, like they are huh. facing off against each other, sort of. What so if- they cut their faces off and switch them? Yes. We're back to Nick Cage again. <laughs> As we should be. 
At the 18th Toronto International Film Festival on September 18th, The Snapper, a film directed by Stephen Frears, wins the People's Choice Award. Well, what just happened? I was snapping. Ah, it's not what it sounded like you were doing. Oh, no, that sounds like this. Uh, fun fact, while I was away, uh, the reason we didn't go to Toronto is because the Toronto International Film Festival was going on there, and uh, we could not possibly have seen any of the city in a day. We could have seen traffic. But you could have gone to see movies. Well, apparently, like, uh, traffic is so bad with pe- random people coming to Toronto to try and catch a glimpse of a movie star that there was really just no point in even trying. Hmm. Quitter. Uh, Patrick Schwarzenegger, son of Arnold, who? Never heard of him. Is born on <laughs> September 18th. I think Pat, I think Pat made that up. Yeah, I think Pat made himself into uh, Arnold's son. Oh, wait, no, that's actually a person. No. <laughs> I was going to say, there's no way Patrick was born in 1993. <laughs> this dude's only 5'11", too. Well, I mean, it's not real. I was going to say, that's, only? Yeah. I know yeah. I'm a Hobbit person, but that's still a... Uh... He has a film career, too. He's done North, Dear Eleanor, The Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. That's a great book, by the way. Book? Graphic novel. Oh, okay. And Benchwarmers. That was fun. Yeah. Also, (laughs) Benjamin Schiff Platt, an actor and singer known for his role as Benji Applebaum in the musicals Pitch Perfect and Pitch Perfect 2 was born on September 24th. Pitches be tripping. <laughs> the hell is wrong with you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm having a weird night. Dude. I'd make a pitch slapped joke here, but I'd just be stealing it from the movie. Ben Platt looks like an alternate universe me. He reminds me of Patrick Schwarzenegger, actually. All right. So, uh, TV. TV. The top shows are... <laughs> 60 Minutes, Roseanne, Seinfeld, and Home Improvement. That's all I got about that. I was, I can't say I was really, actually, I was really not into any of those shows. Really? What? Jesus, what? <laughs> no, I, I yeah. hate to say it, I never was really into Seinfeld. I was all about 60 Minutes. Oh, uh, you I just didn't... like Andy Rooney's floppy neck. I've never seen Seinfeld, but I was deeply invested in Home Improvement for a long time. Seinfeld is my jam. All right. So at the uh, 45th Emmy Awards, held on September 19th, Seinfeld, Ted Danson, and Picket Fences are among the winners. Now, Picket Fences is awesome. That was a good show. That was. Never seen it. Underrated show. And this is immediately before Ted Danson, like, self-immolated his career, I think. Oh, was that right with the the, uh, white face thing? The roast. Yeah. Yeah. So Picket Fences, Tom Skerritt. Uh, Kathy Baker, uh, Don Cheadle was in it. It was actually pretty good. Good stuff. Motherfucking Don Cheadle. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, Leonard Parkin was a British TV journalist newscaster who worked with both the BBC and the ITN. Uh Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. He was one of the most popular newscasters ever and became renowned for his cheerful and friendly disposition. But don't grow too fond of him. He died of (laughs) cancer of the spine. Ugh. On September 20th. And Patrick falls back into uh, theme. Then uh, Zachary Tyler Eisen was born September 23rd. Uh Uh-oh. 
an American voice actor. His roles include Ang in Avatar, The Last Airbender, Pablo the Penguin in Backyardigans, Andrew in Little Bill. Uh, while living in Connecticut, he actually did most of the Avatar recordings via satellite. I know hmm. I may be Joel. Well, Joel, did your kids ever watch uh, Backyardigans? Back to you. Oh, that was a great show. It was a great show. It was really good music. Good that too. Ha! See, great minds. Yeah. So. Yeah, Avatar is the only one of those I know anything about. Oh, really? Hang on here. I'm trying to see. He's great in Avatar. And Little Bill. Little. I remember that episode where he roofied that one girl. <laughs> That's exactly Yikes. what that was about. It was about Bill Cosby as a kid. <laughs> oh no! True story. Why don't you have this little drink right here? I don't know why he sounds like uh, Boss Hog, but that's okay. So on September 16th, Mark Wilmore, Reggie McFadden, and Jay Leggett, uh, and Carol Rosenthal, and Anne-Marie Johnson join the cast of the series ILC, which is the acronym of the week. Of course, that's the famous comedy Intelligent Leopard Cock. <laughs> oh, that was a good show. I like that episode where uh, Andy Rooney interviewed the Intelligent Leopard Cock. As soon as you said Andy Rooney, I knew that was going to a bad place. <laughs> Doesn't it always? But no, that was actually what? In living color. Yes, for its final season, and none of the Wyans are involved at all. That's a shame, because, like, In Living Color without Keenan Ivory Wyans is not In Living Color. Well, it's the same with, um, uh, what's his name? Rub- Rubberface, the mask. What's his name? <laughs> oh, Jim <laughs> Carrey? Jim Carrey. Him on there also is that when he does the uh, parody of uh, uh, Snow's Informer. Yes, that was pretty good. Yeah. yeah, that was that was pretty funny stuff. And then Martha Sports Sports on September 18, the Yankees were trailing three one with two outs in the ninth inning. In the middle of an at bat, a timeout was called, but the pitch was thrown, and Mike Stanley popped out to end the game. However, the out was voided by the umpire and the timeout was granted instead. The Yankees, on their new second chance, rallied to beat the Boston Red Sox 4-3, proving once again that the Yankees are actually the baseball team from hell. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I popped out at a Little League game and they ended it too. That took me a minute, but I appreciated it. And that's why he can't go to the park anymore. <laughs> he was yeah. choking up on his bat. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Uh, sliding into third base thank god (laughs) is it out of your system are you guys done (laughs) give me another Uh, two minutes (laughs) mlb pitching legend nolan ryan pitches his final professional game ever on september 22 he threw for four different teams including well four different teams the new york mets california angels houston astros and texas rangers during a major league record 27-year baseball career. His 5,714 career strikeouts rank first in baseball history by an unbreakable margin, and he is at an, he is the all-time career leader in no-hitters with seven. Nice. Yeah, that's really impressive. I don't know a lot about baseball, but I know that's impressive. I know seven no-hitters is ridiculous. Glamorgan Cricket Club a Welsh Counties team with a 125-year-long and proud history won their first-ever title in one-day cricket on September 19. The decisive victory over Kent, led by Tony Cotty, 
in the company of the legendary West Indian batsman Viv Richards, hitting the winning run runs to seal a historic win by six wickets. The Glamorgan team contains several other great names in the history of the club, including batsmen Steve James and Matthew Maynard, all-rounders Adrian Dale and Robert Croft, wicketkeeper Colin Metzen, plus bowlers Steve Watkin, Steve Barwick, and Roland Lefebvre. I used to have a poster of Viv Richards on my room when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a true statement. (laughs) Although, Viv Richards is a name we've heard before in this weekend. It it definitely is. It definitely is. We have heard about him before. Uh, I still don't know what he did. Yeah, we're starting to recognize stars of cricket. I love it. (laughs) I know. It's so confusing. And do we have any... Wait, do we have any new words? Yes. No. Wait. What do we have? What's the new word? All-rounders. I was going to guess all-rounders. I've never heard. I'm pretty sure we've uh, talked about that. It was uh, people that played a number of different positions. Yeah, I know we've it's come up before, but it hasn't been like like pitching a, like having 13 ladies in one uh, one game. Maidens, maidens. Sorry, ladies, maidens. <laughs> I get so confused. Look, cricket is a made up sport. It's. Mm. I apologize to your. Fans who are also cricket fans. It's okay. It's okay. You're not going to have to get the voicemail from Nikki next week. <laughs> so, but yeah, right. kill it, Colin. Now, this weekend, da 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 da. No, we already did that? that. No, no, that was the ending. <laughs> that was the ending. That was the ending. Da 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 All right, to one, celebrate the fact that Martha is our first female guest on the show. Oh, I guess that's true, isn't it? Yeah, you're the first lady yeah. to ever grace our show. Uh, we are talking about women creators in comics right now. So, this Yeah, is... and we've done comic book shows before, but we've never taken it from this particular angle, looking at the people who make them. And there's this stereotype, which in a lot of cases in the old days was true, that the bullpen was overwhelmingly like guys. So, but we're going to, at the beginning, talk about some of the major exceptions and pioneers of the field that uh, in many cases uh, made comics uh, what they are today. Well, and I really appreciate you guys inviting me on for this show in particular, because not only am I a very big comic fan, um, but since I am responsible for curating the comic collection at the library that I work at, um, diversity in both characters and creators is something that I have on my mind a lot because I want to make sure that my uh, collection represents, you know, the scope of what's available. Right. Um, also, a lot of the women that we're going to be talking about are really excellent social media people. So I've gotten to be quite attached with some of them or to some of them. Um, and I just think that they're really rad people we're talking about. Very cool. And this actually, uh, actually probably for Joel also, um, is a good topic for us because both of us have artistically inclined female siblings, not siblings, children. <laughs> I was going to say, my <laughs> sister is very yeah. artistically inclined, so you're not wrong. But Yeah, yeah. No, so, uh, but yeah, but both of our daughters, uh, I mean, are very uh, much into drawing and comics and that sort of thing so this is something good for us you know be able to have some reflection on that for them to uh you know hey check out uh louise simonson she's awesome she did x-men you know that sort of thing so 
Um, right. Well, you've heard before that representation matters. You guys are going to see that directly through your kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Juliana just finished her first uh, full run of a comic series. So, well, issue, nice. I should say. Cool. You what was she reading? You let her read Faust? No, creating. Oh, oh very nice. Cool. <laughs> so she did a sequel so. to Faust. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're not letting her read Faust? Come on, it's a She's classic. Not doing She's staying away from Tim Vigil until she's at least 18. It's <laughs> probably a good rule. All right. So uh, normally when we do the comics, we, uh, we're we focusing right now a lot on Marvel and DC and the superhero books. And we are going to talk a little bit about the smaller press titles, some Dark Horse and some Image and some uh, Boom comics later on. But our focus right now is going to be limited to what we've personally encountered and uh, comic creators that we've researched and have a little bit have a connection to so uh and ones that you guys will probably know about so at least be able to say hey i remember that comic i did not know that she was in charge of it so or drew it or yes edited it or whatever so if we if we miss one of your favorites and they are really like super small press that's pretty much not to say that they're not notable or important in any way. It's just not the focus of the show because we don't want it to be like three hours long. Right. And if there's anybody you do want us to talk about, I will give out Joel's cell phone number at the end of the show. Word. Wait, what? All right. So uh, starting out, we've got a one Dorothy Wolfolk, otherwise known as Dorothy Rubicek. Yeah, she is one of the luminaries of the Golden Age. Uh, she was the first female editor at DC Comics uh, starting in 1942 at All American, which is one of the companies that uh, became DC eventually. Yeah. So, uh, but she was in the comics during the Golden Age, and that is a huge thing because she was the first female editor starting in 1942. <laughs> I just said that. You did, didn't you? I'm going to move my bottle right over here. <laughs> I totally <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> uh, what I meant to say was, it's good to see that she was a, she was an editor back when there was a time when they had the, uh, like, Mad Men type feel for women going around. You know, like, you were a secretary. You were not really in charge of anything. Yeah. Um, all, not only did she work for what would become DC from All-American, but uh, she also uh, worked for a while as an editor at Timely Comics, which would later become Marvel. So she was an editor uh, for both of the big two before they were even the big two. And don't forget EC Comics, which uh, is is some of the greatest comics of that era. And those were pretty graphic and pretty dark. Oh, the well, yeah, I mean, I mean, she was editing uh, editing books at a time when before before comics started really being for kids. So yeah, the the horror stuff that she was editing at EC was was heavy stuff. Yeah, EC Comics was one of the ones that set off the whole um, corruption. The corruption of the innocent. What was the name of that book? Oh um, yeah, that had the comics code. Yeah. Well, and it yeah, brought us Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, yeah. What was was it? Corruption of the innocent. Sed- I don't know. It was that horrendously fraudulent book that was all about how comics were ruining children and yeah. seduction of the innocent by Frederick Wordham, medical doctor, or in theory, medical doctor. Uh, yeah, so he kind of screwed over comics for the next fifty years. But, Pretty much until the Dark Knight. Yeah. Right. So uh, the other cool thing about Dorothy Woolfolk uh, is that she was Josh. Now, before I say this, did you say this already? 
She no. created uh, no. the concept of kryptonite <laughs> as Superman's weakness. Did yes, he? that's the, she uh, thought that Superman was super boring because he was invulnerable and uh, suggested to Bill Finger that he should have some sort of Achilles heel. Yeah. And while she gave it a great effort, Superman is still boring. Oh, that's a discussion for another day. But I think <laughs> I think uh, Superman's how interesting Superman is heavily depends on who's writing him. I, c- I can give you that. I've never been a, a big fan of uh, Superman comics, mainly because it's like, oh, he's invulnerable. That's awesome. Um, but uh, but no, uh, giving him a weakness, I think, is just one of the was a very smart idea. Well, we just need more crypto. That's all. Crypto the super dog? Yeah. Originally, he was uh, his weakness was Crypto's doggy piles. I don't think that's a true thing, Mike. No? All right. Well, so we, Louise Simonson. <laughs> Wait, one, sorry. One more point about Dorothy, uh, Dorothy Woolfolk. Um, she, a lot of the books that she edited later in her career during the 70s um, were like Wonder Woman, Supergirl, Lois Lane. Um, she did a lot of work in the Superman family set of books uh, to kind of highlight the humanity of the Superman character, kind of uh, building off of her creation of his weakness, which I think is pretty cool. And this is like well past golden age where the Lois Lane stories were all about her being boy crazy and et cetera. So that's kind of cool. Nice. Mm -hmm. So uh, Louise Simonson, uh, wife to Walt Simonson, uh, is the editor of X-Men from 1980 to 1983, uh, and she started writing various properties for Marvel. Uh, she introduced the X-Men villain Apocalypse in her run on the X-Factor book in 1986 and was also responsible for Angel's transformation into Archangel during that same story arc, which I remember uh, reading. I was just going to say the same thing. That was right <laughs> when I was collecting, so I remember that very yeah, well. And I was like, yeah. what? Uh, she yeah. Called- Oh, go ahead, if you liked the X titles from like the eighties through the nineties at all, it's basically because of Louise Simonson. Yeah. Uh, give Chris Claremont a little credit. A little and credit. A, sure. And a little bit to Rob Liefeld, but it's true. Um, she was also in the news a little bit very recently because the new X-Men movie uh, is an apocalypse movie. And her name has been sort of noticeably absent from a lot of their promotional stuff. So a portion of the comic community was kind of up in arms on her behalf recently. Oh, good for them. Mm-hmm. I, I have not seen a new movie because it looks like crap. But uh, I, I just haven't been really been into the X-Men movies since 2. <laughs> since... Well, First Class was fun. Okay, I'll give you that. First Class was fun because they had uh, Quicksilver in it. Mm, was no. That... Was that the one with Quicksilver? Quicksilver was in uh, Days of Future Past. See, that's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> First class was Kevin Bacon. And then I yes. like Chris Cross, who wore <laughs> their pants backwards. Jump, jump. Uh, so, yeah, so she also wrote Superman Man of Steel for eight years, starting in 1991, and co-authored the Death of Superman storyline, which was before, huge. Before we leave the X-Men, uh, she did co-create Kate, the character of Cable with Rob Liefeld. Oh, sorry. Um, Nathan Summers had been kind of hanging around as a character. He is uh, Scott Summers' previously useless little brother until Simonson and Liefeld took him into the future and gave him robot parts. So You said robot parts, and I thought, 
never mind. Of course you did. <laughs> hey, if I could get one, I would. That's why they call him. But yes, Death of Superman. Able. Well, <laughs> Joel's trapped in a banjo now, yeah. I think. <laughs> I, I think so, too. Joel got taken over by Cable. All right, so, uh, yeah, so she was big on the X-Men books, X-Men books, uh, work with Cable and Rob Liefeld and drawing those little bitty feet. <laughs> um, giant gun. Giant yeah, gun. Nice. Little teeny feet. Now, in 1992, when Death of Superman came out, I was pretty fortunate. I don't know if I've told the story on the show before or not. Uh, you didn't buy um, any of the books. No, we uh, our school happened to be shut down the day it was uh, released. We got to the school, and one hour after the opening bell, we'd all gotten through our first class. They realized that all of the toilets in the school were backing up raw sewage into the bathrooms. So no one could be in the school because it was not safe for humans. So me and all of them. Yes, I would say that. (laughs) Uh, My friends and I all immediately went to one stop comics in uh, Forest Park or is that Oak Parks? Still that's Oak Park. Uh, We went to one stop comics and we were among the first high school students to uh, get our hands on copies of death of Superman. I I still have my uh, non poly bag version and my version that's still in the black poly bag. Mm -hmm. I've got my copy also. And fortunately I did not get out of school. I actually went there on my lunch break from my full-time job as a teller. (laughs) I'm old. (laughs) I have it too. And they're all worthless. Yeah. Cause there's so many. Jesus. Yeah, this was the time where the speculation had gotten out of control and everybody was buying Death of Superman and Spawn number one. And it's partially responsible for the huge slump in comic sales in the early to mid 90s. Thanks, Dark Knight Returns. But back to Louise Simonson. Who also helped create the character Steel in 1993 with John Bogdanov. And I love Steel. I don't know about you guys. Now, is Steel the, the guy with the hammer? Yes. Oh, yes. He was cool. John Henry, I think. Yes. Yes. It's a but shame that the actually, movie was so bad. I was yeah, just going to say his movie was terrible, but he's a fun character. Wait, there was a movie? Yeah, it was with Shaq. Shaq. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. I have not seen yeah. it once, let alone twice. Steel. Holy shit, this looks amazing. <laughs> That's one word for it. <laughs> you mispronounced shit. It's no Shaq Fu. What can be? What's the, let's talk about Kazam then? If we're gonna no, we're talking about comics. Let's not talk we're about talk- Kazam ever. We can uh, talk awesome. about uh, one of my first, um, one of my first encounters with comics as a child, which was Louise Simonson when she was working on the Magic book. Uh, magic was one of the first X Men that I really got into uh, as like a preteen. Oh, that was, um, what's, uh, I'm she, trying to remember her, her brother. Yeah, she's Colossus's little sister. That's right. And her powers are, I mean, she's a sorceress who occasionally goes, like, interdimensional hopping. She and Nightcrawler hang out a lot. And I was yeah, reading a I lot remember. of Nightcrawler. <laughs> well, didn't she become, like, uh, mistress of one of the lower planes for a while? She had, like, this whole demon thing going on for a while? Yeah, at first she got captured and, like, dragged into the lower levels of hell, and then she, uh, like, fought her way into being a ruler of one of the lower levels of hell. 
Yeah, she was, I remember her, she was like this little slip of a girl with the horns coming out of her head near the end of the, uh, end of the run of this, of this storyline. Yep, um, and she had a sword with some sort of soul ability. If she killed you with it, she also took your soul. I, I will admit that the main reason I know magic is there's a spectacular blog called the Xavier Files, where he goes with the uh, second and third tier X-Men that you may or may not know of and uh, goes through their entire history and ranks them. And his article on magic is spectacular. See, and I know her because of her run with the New Mutants, because that's when I, again, my heyday in comics, and I remember her being part of that team. Oh, that's right. Then mm-hmm. when she was with the werewolf girl. And Louise Simonson also had a book for Warlock, and that's the Warlock that is the yellow and black crazy thing. I don't know how else to describe him. (laughs) Is that correct? Yes. Is that the Warlock that took over the Infinity Stones after the Infinity War? No, that's Adam Warlock. Adam Warlock. Okay. What the hell am I thinking of? You're thinking of Adam Warlock. Warlock was the new mutant that almost looks like he's done in a different art style than everybody else like oh the one that looked painting yeah yeah they look like he was made by salvador dolly yeah he was very spiky Mm -hmm. yeah i liked him Ian, like a glitch right that's a fun book all right so uh also she uh worked on making a book for galactus also yeah after a hiatus yeah she came back to x titles in 1999 so that's that's where we're at all right, and then there is Martha's favorite person on the internet, Gail so Simone. So I want to I want to ask you guys first before I get into Gail Simone because most of my experience with her happens like in the past seven or eight years. Um, I don't have a lot to say about her before, so it's sort of a question of do I talk about her now or do I wait for the second half of the show? I think we're going to handle because she started in then. We're going to talk about everything for her uh, at this point. Okay. Uh, I know that personally, when someone says women creators of comics, she's the first name that pops up into my head. Yes. Yeah. Every time. She is definitely my favorite person on the internet. If you guys are not following her on Twitter, I highly recommend it. She has turned trolling into an art, um, mostly because she'll say things that then... uh, other fans will feel obligated to correct her on, even if she's clearly like trolling them. Um, she has a long running thing about uh, the metal that Colossus is made out of. And I think she lists a different one every day. Nice. So people have to <laughs> nice. explain, people have to explain to her why she's wrong. Um, but yes, Gail Simone started her life as a hairdresser and a humor column writer. Um, her column was called you'll be sorry for the comic book resources website. And she really, kind of exploded onto the comic scene when she launched her website, Women in Refrigerators, in 1999. Uh, the website was inspired by a Green Lantern comic, um, where the Green Lantern Alex something, I don't remember entirely. One of the Green Lanterns comes home to find that his girlfriend has been cut up into pieces and stuffed in the fridge. And that becomes his, like, grief power for his revenge that he's going to get on the uh, the bad guys that did that to him. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with the term fridging, uh, but the, um, yeah, the term fridging originated with this website. It basically refers to 
a, a female character who is depowered or killed only for the story advancement of a male character. Yes, it was. Uh, it may have been started in Green Lantern fifty four, but it was mastered by Supernatural. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> um, yeah, it's a concept that certainly existed before the website, but it didn't really have a name until uh, Simone um, launched the website. And the website website is basically just a list of female characters who that happened to. Um, her first comic writing job was writing The Simpsons for Bongo Comics. Uh, for the big two, I know that you guys have talked about on your show when she wrote for Deadpool um, and Agent X. Um, and then she really, I would argue, really started getting big when she started writing Birds of Prey in the early 2000s, um, which led to a, uh, she wrote for an event called Villains United for DC, out of which spawned her Secret Six run, um, which has since become sort of a cult classic. Uh, of hers, they relaunched it as part of the New 52 with a different cast. Um, she's also written for The Atom, Wonder Woman. Oh, side note, she's the longest. She is the woman. I'm sorry. I know words. That's good because she... we don't. <laughs> she is the longest running female writer for Wonder Woman. Huh. Now, I know that she's very well known for. Uh... Barbara Gordon as Oracle is, do you happen to know off the top of your head? Is that a concept she created or just a character that she's just well, really well known for writing? I'm glad you asked. She did not come up with Oracle. Um, Oracle was invented post the killing joke by the writers off the top of my, or on the tip of my tongue. Frankie Avalon. Probably not. <laughs> um, Ted Turner. Um, William Dozier and Julius Schwartz. That guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, but she was, or, um, but Oracle really took off um, via Simone's Birds of Prey run. So while okay. she did not, yeah, she didn't come up with the concept, but she did um, kind of bring her to full fruition, I guess you could say. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And then, her her run on Batgirl, when DC launched their new 52 in like 2011, Gail Simone was the writer for Batgirl. And that was really what got me back into comics as an adult. Um, I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about the new 52. I really liked it because it was it was a really convenient jumping on point. It's like I, I haven't been reading comics for 20 years, but now it doesn't matter. Um, and re yeah, reading her Batgirl run was what was my sort of foot in the door. Uh, two comics as a fully grown human being. Uh, incidentally, I'm following her on Twitter now. She, nice. You, you won't regret it. <laughs> uh, she also wrote um, the Tomb Raider comics for Dark, Heart, Dark Horse. After the new Xbox Tomb Raider game came out, they did a run of uh, comics, which I think may still be going, um, sort of bridging the two, the two video games. Um, and she also took over Red Sonja for Dynamite in what might be one of the most breathtaking character rehabs I've ever seen. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Red Sonia, but she has a lot of bad like rape and misogyny and stuff in her character history that Gail Simone did a lot to kind of uh, retcon <laughs> and give the character back her agency. Hmm. There you go. It's kind of right at the ship for a character that had kind of been 
someone who had been fridged for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has uh, several creator-owned projects going on right now, um, including one of my favorite horror comics called Clean Room, which she's writing for Image, I think. Um, and Leaving Megalopolis, which was originally a Kickstarter comic and now is being published through Dark Horse, which is about a city and what happens when all of the superheroes in the city completely lose their shit and become evil. Oh, that sounds fun. It, is. it actually does. Actually, no, I'm being completely serious about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love Gail Simone. She's, she's one of the biggest cheerleaders for other women in the comics industry. Uh, she's done a lot to help launch other um, other women. She did a anthology for Dark Horse, or she did a huge crossover event for Dynamite involving like all of their kind of pulpy female characters, um, and all of the creators for that event were women. Um, she's great to see at cons. She's a great speaker. She's very wry, uh, very matter-of-fact. Um yeah, I have a signed Batgirl script from her that I got when I met her at a C2E2. She's just a great person. Very cool. Wow. The clean room looks insane. I'm just <laughs> looking at it right now, some of that stuff from it. It's nuts. So uh, the next one up is probably I should send her a letter of thanks uh, to a one Karen Berger. Because uh, apparently she's responsible for getting Neil Gaiman to write Sandman, which is one of my top three favorite comics of all time. Uh was also the yeah. editor for Alan Moore's Swamp Thing after Len, uh, Len Wine stepped down. And Which then, is one of so, my favorite comics of all time, so yeah. Yeah. double uh, thank you. And introduced the industry to Brian K. Vaughn, <laughs> Garth Ennis, Grant Morrison, and G. Willow Wilson, who's coming up later. And Yeah, uh, I mean, talk about all-stars. Working with Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman at the beginning of their careers Garth, and then uh, Garth being Ennis responsible. At the beginning of his career, too. I mean, seriously. Yeah. And then Vaughn, Ennis, Morrison. I, I, I did not realize this. Like, I knew that uh, she was supervising editor of Vertigo. She was the creative force behind Vertigo all the way from the very beginning until uh, 2012. But I didn't realize how many of the creators who I have come to know and love over the decades, the world would never have known uh, without her. I mean, maybe if you lived in Britain, uh, you would have uh, known some of like Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, Eventually, they would have made it over here to the States. But, uh, man, just talk about all these luminaries that, uh, yeah, her influence brought into the industry. Well, and editors, I feel, are sometimes the kind of unsung heroes of the comics industry. Because, like, you hear about, like, yes, Neil Gaiman wrote Sandman. But it wouldn't have happened without a good editor that was rooting for the project and making it happen. Um, so I'm glad that we're including editors on this list in addition to writers and artists because, yeah, without Karen Berger, I don't think that a lot of the kind of foundational comics that we've read in our lives uh, would have happened. Uh, it's a really good transition to the next name on our list. Talk about uh, editors who uh, really shaped the face of comics. You've got Battle and Bobby Chase. Uh, she was the f- uh, she started 
uh, as an assistant editor, but her first major project was uh, she was put in charge of all of the G.I. Joe line, including their uh, flagship title, uh, G.I. Joe Greatest American Hero. And because of her familiarity with the property, uh, Upper Deck tapped her to co-develop the first line of the Upper Deck G.I. Joe trading cards. Where knowing is half the battle. <laughs> G.I. Joe Porkchop Sandwiches! Uh... Of course, uh, from G.I. Joe, she goes straight to one of the biggest of the big at Marvel. You've got, uh, th- uh, she edited, uh, The Incredible Hulk for 10 years. Well, I want to, and jump, then I want to jump back okay. to her editing at, on G.I. Joe. Now, mm-hmm. to be able to make sure that everyone's got their shit together on a line like G.I. Joe, where you have 13 different plot lines with Scarlet and, uh, with Snake Eyes and with Duke and all that going. I mean, making sure that all that was reined in. Because I read G.I. Joe for a long while from 86 on. Same. So Yeah, and the comics were so much better in terms of storytelling and plot development and character development than the show. I mean, characters could die in the G.I. Joe comics. Yeah, and that's one of the things that really drew me into comics was her line of the G.I. Joe of the G.I. Joe's was because it was like, oh, like, uh, bef- I mean, like, before that it was, oh, G.I. Joe comic or XYZ comic. Oh, they, here's the good guys. They meet the bad guys. They beat the bad guys. On to next week. You know, this is one yeah. of those where I first realized that, you know, this can carry on, you know, from one to the other. I mean, I remember in this run, uh, seeing of, you know, being caught up in the whole fact that, uh, Scarlet and, um, Snake Eyes, uh, used to have a thing, you know, and there was like this whole subplot about them dealing with the fact that they used to be together, and then he got burnt by the by the jet uh, the jet stream out of the one of the one of the helicopters, and that ruined everything. And like, in going from these little these toys that I played with, it's eighty six. I was just out of middle school and getting into high school, and then realizing you know there's more than just these little cards on the back. And I really dug these comics at this time. So I may have been rushing us forward. We've kind of talked about like our first comics that we ever cared about. The reason I I was pushing us, unfortunately, too fast past G.I. Joe is to get to this next bit. Because she is responsible for revitalizing the two comics that got me into comic books in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doctor Strange and Ghost Rider, my number one and number two favorite heroes. Uh, Their titles were flagging the sales were nowhere they weren't popular and then bobby chase came on and took them in a new direction and that's when you get the sons of darkness johnny blaze and the hellfire shotgun spirits of vengeance the whole like dark supernatural dark hold redeemers this is what made me buy comics my first comic book was spirits of well no my first comic book as a collector, like the first one that uh, got me to say, I'm going to have a pull list now, and this is a thing I do, was Spirits of Vengeance number one. So, yeah, this is completely thanks to the influence of Bobby Chase. Well, and I encountered her a little bit later um, when she took over editing in DC or at DC for Nightwing, Batgirl, and Teen Titans, um, which I believe was also part of the New 52. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she was a big reason that a couple years after the New 52 launched, DC 
kind of rehabbed some of their lines that had more YA appeal into more of a YA grouping. So titles like Nightwing, um, Batgirl Teen Titans, also Gotham Academy, um, the Grayson book. Uh, she was responsible for DC kind of lightening up the tone of those books and making them a little bit different from the hardcore nitty gritty um, that Batman was going through, well, constantly, um, and making them more of a um, more accessible to younger people. Well, and the, the, her influence on those books is one of the reasons why last year DC made her vice president of talent development, mm-hmm. which is no surprise because uh, as of 1995, she actually occupied the highest organi- organizational chart position of any woman in the big two when she was overall executive editor for Marvel. Uh, she took over the, all the Star Trek books. She was editing Iron Man. She was editing Fantastic Four. And then uh, they laid her off and brought in, uh, was it, oh, I'm, bl- I'm blanking here. Uh, the, the current. Uh, yeah, Joey Q. Oh, that and they decided to go in a different direction, which is kind of a shame. I mean, not, not nothing against Joe Casada, but I'm a bigger fan of the Bobby Chase era. I'm going to well, have a D- lot against DC Joe has made a couple of uh, changes in regime recently that are maybe a little questionable, but, um, yeah, we'll get to that in the now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's going to be an interesting conversation. Cause I know you and I know what happened there. I'm curious how much, uh, Joel and Mike know about it. All right. So, uh, after Barbara, Bobby chase, we've got Wendy Penny. And um, she is one of the names that I added to the list just because her comic, and as far as I know, it's the only one she's ever worked on. Mm-hmm. But is- she's been writing it for, well, since 1978. Um, and it's ElfQuest, which for me was, you know, when people talk about things being formative for them, ElfQuest was a formative book for me as a teen. Um, and it's also been published by everyone. Yeah. Um <laughs> She and her husband, Richard Peeney, started uh, publishing it under their own label. Um, it has since bounced around between Marvel, DC, and the current arc is being released by Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're, I mean, they built this, this book up from nothing and self-published it for more time than they didn't. Um, and I, I don't think there are very many fantasy comics right now that don't owe at least some of their popularity to the fact that ElfQuest has been so so big for so long. And I have to imagine some of that transition came from her previous career as a very successful a cover artist for sci-fi magazines. Uh, and frequently her covers had a fantasy slant to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I got to imagine at some point it's like, I'm creating all these cool characters. Wouldn't it be great to tell stories about characters like this that thought process must have happened sometime pre-1978 yeah i my my thing about wendy penny i am a huge elf quest fan uh i started collecting it that was the first comic that i actually had to get the next step next issue of that was my pull list comic josh okay and i did a i mean i i still have my first comic from from ElfQuest back from uh, Marvel. I spent a lot of time learning drawing from her images. A lot of my style of drawing comes from Wendy Penny's style of drawing uh, Cutter and uh, uh, Skywise and all those characters out there. I mean, I have 
I have ElfQuest novels. I have an ElfQuest board game. Um, just, I followed it. It was one of the few comics that I have every single issue from beginning to end. So, I mean, Wendy Penny, honestly, is one of my favorite women in comics. I love what she's done. Uh, I was actually the one who tossed in that she dressed as Red Sonia because it was kind of goofy that she was known for going to cons and dressing. And that was her before cosplay was super huge. She had a great Red Sonia uh, deal that she did. But um, her and her husband, Richard, um, were they put a lot of love into this comic. Uh, they, if they had not pushed it as much as they did, it would not have gotten such popularity. And actually, they actually drew themselves into the comic. There's one uh, one issue where uh, Cutter and Skywise meet two humans within the world, and it is Wendy and Richard uh, in the comic. So, I think it's also worth mentioning, um, Outquest is interesting because from start to finish, it is, I think, one of the most diverse comics being produced, both in terms of um, characters of color, but also um, different sexualities. Um, they were they were writing uh, diverse casts before that was even a topic of conversation, and I think that they continue to get away with it because they spent so long developing, or the the comic spent so long gathering popularity that once it got bounced to uh, the big two to be published. Um, you know, what, what, what are they going to do? Like say, oh, we don't want to publish something with, uh, pansexual, polysexual characters. So it was and continues to be one of the most interestingly diverse books that you can buy. <clears throat> That's pretty awesome. Cause even the like most basementy of the neckbeards can't possibly accuse ElfQuest of pandering to changing attitudes in society. Cause they were doing that before those attitudes were changing really. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, so next up is Amanda Connor, uh, worked predominantly for Marvel from 89 to 2002, writing for Avengers, Daredevil, and Black Panther. And in the now, she is actually the first solo writer on the Harley Quinn book, uh, Harley Quinn Power Girl, and she's written for Batgirl, Birds of Prey, Green Arrow, Black Canary, and others. Uh, so I wanted to put Amanda Connor on this list because of the Harley Quinn book, um, Harley Quinn is, I think, one of, if not the most consistently popular books that DC publishes right now. And as a character, Harley Quinn makes money for DC on par with how much money Batman makes for DC. Um, That's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, she's literally the most profitable female character uh, in comics right now, and a lot of that is because of Connor's solo book. Um, I would argue that Harley probably needed a solo book before Connor started writing it, but she, you know, she was the first one to do it and it's been huge, explosive even. Now was the solo book the first time we talked a little bit about Harley in bat month way back when, was this uh, the first time that Harley started to make the hero turn or was that before the solo book? I'm not really sure. Um, I'm also not really sure that you could call Harley in her book, a hero. Uh, sure, spent... <laughs> I guess anti-hero. Anti-hero is probably more accurate. Yeah, and I think that she's had shades of that for a while. Because um, this is this is the book that launched, I think, in 2011. So it's it's a fairly recent book. And I think that uh, Harley's Harley was at least on the Suicide Squad before that happened. And the Suicide Squad's deal is being anti-heroes 
Yeah, and her her run in Suicide Squad was definitely uh, a character change for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's been referred to as DC's equivalent to Deadpool in terms of uh, explosive <laughs> popularity. I could see that. Uh, I, totally I think the movie has proved that. Yeah, she was the only good part about that movie. <laughs> well, it's done gangbusters because of that, and she's become the cosplay character of this year. And many years before. That movie was such a garbage file. Yeah, but it may mean it may mean (laughs) that uh, we're going to get a Harley Solo movie, which uh, I would approve of. Well, and Margot Robbie has actually expressed interest in helming and producing a Gotham City Sirens film, which I would be 1000% into. That'd be badass. All right, so before we go to the break, we've got one more name on our list for then, and that's Linda Berry. She is not and has never worked for the big two, but I did think she was worth mentioning because of her influence in many of the women working for the big two now. Um, Linda Berry was a newspaper comic artist who moved online once newspapers stopped being a thing um, and was inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame this year. And yeah, like I said, I wanted to include her just because she's the kind of woman that other people say, like, I wouldn't be making comics if it wasn't for Linda Berry. Hmm. Yeah, I can see uh, there's some quotes you put in here, both Gail Simone and Matt Groening. Yeah, Matt uh, Groening, actually, um, he was a, a contemporary of Linda Berry's. They went to school together, developed a lot of uh, project ideas together. Uh, Groening was responsible for um, getting her strip in the newspaper or in the in newspapers in 1989, uh, which launched her career. And when he accepted his Eisner Hall of Fame award this year, also said my biggest influence is Linda Berry. So that's badass. All right. Plus her newest book. Sorry, last last point. Her newest book (laughs) is called When Heidi Met Carrie. Heidi being the children's book character and Carrie being the Stephen King book character. So just as an illustration for the kind of work that she does. (laughs) And I'm searching that out right now. (laughs) I was just looking at it. It's bizarre. (laughs) That's fantastic. So are we ready to go to the break? And then uh, we'll come back uh, for now and uh, talk about women in comics. Now. All right, we are back I'm talking about the now for women in comics. Uh, for some reason, my show notes say must construct additional pylons. I did not add that. <laughs> I did add the two uh, uh, just for funsies. I pulled up uh, quotes on how many women are currently making comics with the big two. Um, just you know, as sort of a sort of an example of we've come so far, but got such a long way to go. Um, in July of 2016, DC released 62 new comic books with 522 credited creators, 426 men, and 96 women. In July of 2016, Marvel put out 84 new comics featuring 699 credited creators, 589 men, and 110 women. And those are editors, artists, writers, colorists, letterers, um, pencilers, everyone. So... Just as kind of a 
you know, we, we don't have many names on, on these lists and, and that's kind of why. Now, my, my curiosity is where was it in 1996? What was the progression from 96 to 2016? You know, uh-huh. I'm, you know, is it, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if there would be that, that out there. That information well, would be out there. But. And I'm not sure either, but just as an example, um, Wikipedia has a list of, and it's not inclusive, but it has a list of prominent women who have worked in comics, just full stop. Um, and for women in America, they have them split between like Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, and just the number of names on the list, there's like two thirds as many um, before you get to modern age comics okay. working for the big two. So I have to imagine that even though we're talking about a quarter of the creators being women now, it's better than it used to be. Oh, it's gotta be. And even though we are kind of battling against a stereotype, that's always been all guys. There is a little bit of truth in that stereotype that for a long time, it was overwhelmingly guys. And still, I mean, three quarters everyone's you've got people jumping up and down angry talking about how oh, comics aren't what they used to be blah 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 well i mean we've just gone from comics being mostly done by and about basically white guys to only being overwhelmingly mostly about and done by white guys well and I've- i will say this is one of the places where i'm um, limiting the focus of the show um doesn't quite give the whole picture because there have always been women working in comics. There just haven't always been women working for the big two. Um, if you look at women um, making, you know, like Linda Berry, women making independently run comics, women making small press comics, um, those numbers have always been higher uh, outside of Marvel and DC. And another thing that you have to take into account between the then and the now, I mean, the 96, I'm just going to go with a like 96 being, you know, 20 years ago with this. Then and the now, online comics have grown so huge from then to now that there is a lot of presence of female comic artists online, which just you know that that you can get your own domain that are joining up with um, uh, different comic groups. Like uh, currently, the one that I go to a lot is called the Hive Works, and it's a it's a conglomeration of comics. And uh, uh, if not. 50-50, there is a huge uh, portion of comic artists on that site that are women. I mean, it's, I think well, and, they're finding new venues. And a little bit later, as we get more into the now, I have a couple women on here who started as webcomic artists um, and got picked up by uh, picked up as freelancers for Marvel and DC, but um, definitely got their start in the industry doing their own thing online. That's actually a great transition to the first name on our list, to Sarah Pacelli from uh, Rome, Italy. Uh, she did not start on the web, but she did start in an, a related industry that is not mainstream comics. And she was an animator. She did a lot of storyboard stuff and character design and animation. And an international talent search looking for top talent turned her up and IDW scooped her up and eventually she was headhunted away to join Marvel. Um, She was best known in her early career at Marvel as the uh, main penciler and artist 
in general for various Marvel anthology titles. And the Runaways book, uh, she did the art with Catherine Immonen as the writer. But the main reason she is the first on our list here is because she was lead artist. She was the first person to visualize Miles Morales as Spider-Man in Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 2. Hmm. Who is arguably becoming a more popular Spider-Man than Peter Parker, at least with younger readers. Mm-hmm. There was a reason why there were a very few things salvaged from uh, Ultimate Universe after Secret Wars, and Miles was like, okay, absolutely number one. Miles has to make it. So there's that. Joel, you got anything? I like Spider-Man. <laughs> I don't really, but I do like Miles. <laughs> Well, he's he's a bit more relatable to the modern audience. I mean, he's he's younger, like which which Peter Parker used to be, and you know, there's more diversity reading the comics. So you know, they want to see themselves represented in the different race, colors, creeds that are out there, and so that gives them a voice. You know, somebody behind the mask that they can relate to. Well, and I know that at least for the teens that I work with, um, Spider Man is one of their favorite. Uh, comics to read and for a lot of them it's because you know the behind the spider-man mask i mean spider-man could be anybody um and i think that miles is kind of putting their money where their mouth is for that idea because yes spider-man could be anybody but peter parker is still a you know white middle-class kid um and miles morales really is more um kind of encompassing that idea that superheroes don't have to be all uh, cut from the same mold. They can really be anybody. Um, the next name on our list is not known for superhero comics and is actually not known primarily for being part of the big two. But uh, Fiona Staples, uh, she has been in the industry for a while. She was first published only uh, 11 years ago in the 24-hour Comics Day anthology in 2005 with a story called Amphibious Nightmare. Uh, I, I threw in the next bullet point mainly for Joel. She was one of the illustrators for Wildstorm's adaptation of Trick or Treat, the movie that we've talked about at length on the show. Ah, uh, yes. Also is the uh, co-owner of Saga and developed the visual design for the cast and ships to bring uh, the world to life. Uh that was written by Brian K. Vaughn. Yeah, a saga is what I was mainly referring to as a not a incredibly popular non big two non superhero book. Yeah, saga is one of those books where even people who wouldn't describe themselves as comic fans probably read saga. Yeah, I don't know if uh, either Joel or Mike, if you guys have checked it out. I was just going to ask what saga. Yeah, I'm Game a- of Thrones in space. Yeah, I'm aware of it. It's on my list. I haven't got that far down the list yet. Wait, what's in space? Game of Thrones in space. Oh. Yeah, and you've just got these incredibly imaginative races, uh, two in particular that have been at war for a long, long time, and then the uh, coupling of uh, a man and a woman from these two opposing races and their child is basically the core of what Saga is all about. Yeah, they leave because they're like, we just want to raise our family in peace. And both sides are like, nah. Mm-hmm. You and your kid gotta die. And then they have a whole race of 
people who have televisions for heads, which is cool. What? <laughs> yeah, I think the sixth or seventh trade just came out. Um, it's ongoing. Um, but yeah, it's one of uh, Image's highest selling titles. Yeah, her process on Saga w- is pretty awesome. Uh, she's disappointed her uh, people that uh, I'm trying to think of the exact name of someone who would like peddle her art to the masses because she doesn't actually have pencils to sell, which would sell for Saga like gangbusters. She starts with a thumbnail and uses this tiny thumbnail digitized and blown up as her loose sketch for the pencil. And her technique has been described as a focus on like traditional animation techniques where you've got one layer that is a detailed background and another layer that's all the characters. And she's combining all of these elements completely digitally using a bunch of different programs uh, to produce this 100% digital artwork that looks like a painted version of traditional classic anime. So, pretty cool. Yeah, and that thing, I am more and more impressed with the ability for digital artists to make things look like they've been made with traditional oils or gouache or acrylics. I, I, there's there's a lot of this art that I'm looking at right now by her that I'm amazed is not actually physically existing. Right? Huh. This looks uh, interesting. Yeah, like, it's really cool. I think both of you would really like it. And then uh, last year, she was uh, involved in the visuals uh, for the 2015 relaunch of Archie, which I've seen a little bit about, but don't know a ton about. I know it's a more serious, less campy take. Right. It is a seriously great book. Archie fought the Predator for a while, too. He did. That was was still in the sort of campy era when they were doing the house style and like afterlife with Archie, all these crazy things. Afterlife with Archie is still ongoing, um, but it's an alternate universe story. But yeah, the new the new Archie is being written by Mark Wade, and uh, Fiona Staples did the art for um, the first handful of issues. I don't think she's currently the lead artist on it anymore, but it is a really great book. Um, it's it's like they took everything that is kind of the core of Archie, but made it relevant to actual real life teenagers. Um, and they got rid of all of the weird, gross, two girls dating the same guy, exploitative relationship. Um, but yeah, A plus do recommend. It's also a really great um, all ages title. So I would, if you're a, if your kids read comics, Joel and Mike, I would recommend that one to them as well. Very cool. All right. So then after that, we have G Willow Wilson. Oh, Wait, one last point about Fiona oh, Staples. Sorry. Comic Book Resources, the site which we've talked about before, last year they had a poll ranking the best female comic artists of all time. Uh, number one on that list, Fiona Staples. Just want to make sure we got that in there. Very nice. All right. So uh, G. Willow Wilson, a writer for Mrs. Marvel. Miss Marvel. Ms. Marvel. For, for a long time, I don't know if it's still true, but for a long time when uh, Wilson was first hired by Marvel, she was the only Marvel exclusive female writer that they had on their payroll. And um, she was another scoop up by Karen Berger, who we talked about in the first half. Mm-hmm. Most of the women that Marvel has on their payroll are not, don't have exclusive deals with them. So they're free to work on image books or independent projects or do stuff for DC. Um, but Wilson for a long time. And like I said, don't know if this is still true, 
Uh, but Wilson was exclusive, only does work for Marvel. Um, the only female that they had with that kind of deal. Um, and yeah, she writes Miss Marvel, which is my favorite superhero title currently being published. Um, I have a cool little story that I heard uh, Wilson tell in an interview once about how Miss Marvel kind of came to be. Uh, when she was hired by Karen Berger, she and Sana Amanat, the next name on our list, um, were basically hired to do a new unnamed superhero book. Uh, Marvel said that they wanted a new character um, and they wanted them to be Muslim. And those were the only two instructions that they gave Wilson and Amanat. Uh, so they sat down, put their heads together. Um, they asked, along with the artist on the book, Adrian Alfona, asked if they could use the Miss Marvel title um, since the uh, previous Miss Marvel had just been elevated to Captain Marvel. And drawing on Wilson's background as a Muslim, they created Kamala Khan, who is a 16-year-old uh, Muslim currently calling herself Miss Marvel. Uh, she's one of my favorites because she does not have a tragic backstory. Her family is alive and happy and loves her. And a huge part of her story and her identity is juggling um, her religion and her family duties and her life as a teen with the fact that she also wants to be a superhero. Yeah, there's a... I recommend this book to anyone with eyes. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of uh, smashing of stereotypes real early on. Uh, I think the first panel I ever saw of Kamala Khan was her drooling over, I don't know if it was hot dogs or hamburgers or bacon. Hot dogs. It was hot dogs. And she's just like uh, smelling them. It's like delicious forbidden meat. Yeah. And her friend is like, you know, you can't eat those. And she's like, it's not sinning if I'm just smelling. <laughs> <laughs> so like all of the, uh, stereotypes, especially of Muslim women as just like having no sort of personality, no sort of a sense of humor. Uh, often you see depictions of Muslim women uh, being completely humorless, completely subdued, and that's not Kamala Khan. She is a Muslim American teenager, and all three of those parts are super important to her character. It's a great book. Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Choking on something. All right. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Wilson also, um, I believe, launched a, a book called A-Force, which is a Marvel team book starring almost completely female characters, uh, She-Hulk, uh, Miss Marvel, Dazzler, and others. Um, it's currently being written by a woman named Kelly Thompson, who also writes the Gem and the Holograms comic. Which, side note, I wish that you guys would do a gem show so that you could talk about how great this comic is. I have been talking about doing a gem show, and I have been but, told... But we'd have to see the movie. That's right. <laughs> that has always been the stumbling block. That's, I yeah. hear it's just, truly outrageous. Just drink heavily while you're watching it. It'll be fine. All right, you're going to have to just give me something other than that, because that's what I do every time. <laughs> so, skip the movie. Just talk about the now with the comic, which is amazing. Cool. All right, so are we moving on to Sana? We've mostly hit the high points of Sana Aminat. She's best known as being the co-creator of Ms. Marvel okay. with G. Willow Wilson, but she's also editor and director at Marvel, and she's into content development for a whole bunch of titles, including Ultimate Spider-Man and Carol Danvers' Captain Marvel. Nice. All right, then we'll move on to Shelley Bond. 
prominent editor at Vertigo for 20 years, including executive editor for three, until she was fired by DC earlier this year, part of the uh, restructuring of the imprint. But she was also the editor on the Fable series and the more recent Sandman books, which means... In addition to all of the stuff that she worked on with Karen Berger. Right. So is this the time we have to talk about the thing? It is the time we have to talk about the thing. Is it clobber in time? Wait, the thing thing, or is there another thing? <laughs> there, the thing there's thing. another thing. There's, there's a thing that happened at DC, which is uh, not so awesome for the topic of women in comics. So Shelley Bond was let go from her position as executive editor at Vertigo earlier this year, um, which inspired a lot of discourse about how DC was treating their employees, um, particularly their female employees. Um, there, it, Josh, how do I want to say this? Well, there's definitely a lot of interference in female-led titles, uh, especially when it comes to any sort of issues that might be considered provocative. And the interference was specifically in a direction where it was very clear that that sort of editorial or from the top management interference would not have taken place had the creators and themes involved been involving male characters and male creators. I don't know if you have more to say about that, more <laughs> clarification. No, I, I actually think that you and I might be talking about two different issues. Um, oh, I think, think we are then. Uh, what I was, what I, kind of heard um, Shelley or Shelley Bond's name in connection to was the fact that she was being asked to let go when um, one of the editors for the Superman family of books, who is a known um, harasser, has had several uh, complaints registered against him by female employees at DC is staying on apparently indefinitely while they're more than happy to let their prominent and talented uh, women Leave. Okay, so yeah, this is a this is a more uh, recent purge than the one I think I was talking about when they were even letting go like Eisner Award winning women. So this this is part two of the thing, a little bit more <laughs> recent and a little bit more terrible. Is it yes. clobbering time yet? I'm not sure what to do now. <laughs> um, no, just when she was when she was let go, it called into question kind of DC's, I guess practices in who they kept and why um but her her exit from vertigo was kind of the catalyst for a, a number of women to come forth and say why are you firing her this other editor a man named eddie berganza has been working at this company apparently consequence free um while he is like the, the the worst kept secret at DC is how awful of a harasser and um, misogynist he is towards other female employees. So that's what I was sort of aware of. Hmm. Um, is that not the thing yeah. you were thinking of, Josh? Well, no, it's it's just a more recent development in a pattern of DC over the last three years, which is crazy because it, it, they seem kind of schizophrenic. They've tried to uh, address issues of inclusion. There was uh, uh, what was the the major title that came out last year that was uh, oh, I'm just blanking right now. 
that was all about e- uh, social issues uh, as sort of the uh, concept of the book. The movement? Is, is, is it the movement? The movement was a 12-issue, um, was a very short-run ongoing that started with New 52, where the um, team was basically millennials um, trying to reclaim their borough from a gentrification um, which is an oversimplification of the book. It's a really good book, but I don't know if it's what you're thinking of. Well, no, that's another Gail Simone. And I think the movement plays into this other narrative uh, that was, I'm, I'm unfortunately, uh, since I didn't put it in the show notes, a little light on the details. Because <laughs> uh, what I'm thinking of is Grant Morrison's big thing from last year. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, talk amongst yourselves. I'll, I'll try and dig it up. <laughs> So, Joel, how are you? Uh, you guys have show notes. I'm I'm doing fine. <laughs> it's, we have we do have show notes, but we don't want to go ahead because you're trying keep to going. keep talk going. Keep going. All specifically. right. Specifically, so Shelley Bond, I love her because she had something to do. She was the editor on Fables and Sandman books, and I'm a huge I'm a big fan of Fables also, except for the video game because it's really skippy and stutters a lot but uh the fables comic is one of my favorites and i'm a fan of shelly bond because she was part of the team that put that one together uh next up was kelly sue deconic yes she yeah. is writing the new cap or she wrote writes captain marvel uh so when carol danvers stopped being miss marvel and got promoted to captain marvel uh kelly sue deconic took over that book um okay she also is she the Captain Marvel with the funky mohawk? Yes. All right, cool. Doing I know who you're talking about. Crazy shit in space. Yes. <laughs> and she also um, does. <coughs> yeah, she also writes a really great book for Image, which I'm going to talk about while I pull up her Marvel resume, which is eight zillion titles long. Um, but it's called Bitch Planet, which is a sort of 70s style prison exploitation comic. Sounds right about- up Joel's alley. The prison planet that women go to when they're arrested for being non or for acting in any way that others perceive as non-compliant. So being angry or disagreeable or in any other way not controllable, they get sent off to Bitch Planet. Um, it's great. It's drawn. The art is very much like a 70s magazine. Um, so it's got the pop art, like... Um, pixelated kind of coloring um it's like orange is the new black only with more attitude and less uh piper i don't know um, what but, piper means i've never seen that show orange is the new black oh piper's the really obnoxious lead character that nobody cares about oh okay cool yeah um so for marvel she has worked on lots of stuff uh captain america or not captain america captain marvel avengers assemble um the Osborne book, Age of Heroes. She did a couple of Sith one-shots, Avenging Spider-Man. Um, basically, she's been all over Marvel since about 2010. Okay. Uh, she also has a really beautiful book um, called Pretty Deadly, which the first volume was based on sort of a Wild West kind of Native American mythos. And the second volume is more Norse mythology uh, storytelling another great book she's a very kind of ethereal storyteller <clears throat> all right so then after um, 
And I also wanted to mention her work as a manga editor, uh, because manga is one of those things that when I was a kid and the comics landscape was pretty hostile towards uh, girl readers, manga was there for me with all of its magical girls and floating cherry uh, blossom petals and everything. So I appreciate the work that Deconic did translating a lot of that girly manga that I was reading as a junior high kid. The manga I read had floating cherries, too. It's good stuff. It is. Dirty Pear, Gogol 13, all that stuff. Time that a lot of people uh, recognize as Fruits Basket. I uh, yeah, and I'm familiar uh, with Fruits Basket. I've heard of that one. Yeah, it's good stuff. So, uh past that, we've got uh Becky Clunan. Clunan. All right. So, uh, she... let me just jump in cuz I finally found exactly what I was talking about. Okay. Uh, right around the time that they were uh, launching the Multiversity, which uh, is a Grant Morrison 2014-2015 series of interrelated uh, crossover like one-shots, you've got all of these inter- super interesting characters from all these different spaces in the DC multiverse. Um, You've also got a huge, huge uh, controversy when a bunch of female creators were unceremoniously fired after some uh, difficulty surrounding the uh, wedding of a Batwoman, who was long established as a lesbian character. Well, it was and because they, DC wouldn't let them write the wedding. Right. And their editorial interference. It's weird that kind of the direction DC was going, the point I was trying to make was saying one thing with one hand with the, the multiversity and the gen, uh, versus the gentry, and then doing another thing with the other hand with their treatment of their creators uh, surrounding the Batwoman titles. So that, that was what I was trying to get to as, as kind of the start of the thing. I got you now. Okay, so on to uh, we do you were. Have any, we kind of went over Kelly Sue DeConnick, Josh. Do you have anything to add? I do not. I, I, I was listening and seeing if I, I needed to jump in, but uh, no, we can totally move on to Becky Cloonan. Cool. All right, so uh, she had several awards on her solo work and some collaborations. She became the first woman to draw DC's main Batman title in 2012. Uh, she's written for Swamp Thing, American Vampire, Harley Quinn, and Gotham Academy. American Vampire sounds like something I need to read. It's great. It is mo- Scott Snyder is the main writer on that. Okay. Um, he does a lot of horror stuff. He's also DC's go-to Batman guy right now. Nice. Um, yeah, it's sort of American history through the eyes of vampires. Oh, very cool. Uh, she's also worked on several projects for Dark Horse, including a Buffy story arc and, uh, the Guild arc, a book of the, uh, the Guild, the, that's a web series. Yeah, she worked on that one with Felicia Day. Okay. And was the artist on True Lives, the fabulous Killjoys. Sounds like, uh, vacation for me sometimes. (laughs) Uh, That one, that one's notable mostly because it was written by Gerard Way, who is, I think either taking over or becoming one of the top people for the new incarnation of Vertigo. Okay. Very cool. All right. Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say her, um, Gotham Academy is another one of DC's new, newer, uh, kind of YA leaning books, uh, which is super fun and 
also one that I recommend to any teens, particularly teen girls who want to be reading uh, big two books but don't really know where to start. All right. Uh, she also has worked on Young Avengers, New Avengers, Victor Von Doom, and The Punisher. And in yeah, her image I stuff. Probably, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I probably know Becky Cloonan best for her uh, writing on New Avengers. That uh, the last couple years, I have gotten back into Avengers books in general. Uh, obviously, with my love for the MCU, and uh, her run on New Avengers is spectacular. Very cool. Uh, she's also worked on an image book called Southern Cross. Which is a super trippy sci-fi book about a girl on a spaceship that she comes to realize is possessed by dead people. <laughs> of course it is. That sounds cool. All right. And she's done a lot of covers in her time also. Huge covers. Huge covers. Like really big ones. Yeah. Yes. By that I meant she's done a lot of covers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Clarification. That's good. Uh, Marguerite Bennett, uh, currently writing DC Bombshells, which I have seen and want to pick up because it looks like my, my, it looks like a 1920s, 1930s style comic. Uh. So DC Bombshells is super fun because it started life as a series of gimmick covers um, for one of DC's theme months. So they did a bunch of covers on all of their books with this really fun kind of retro uh, art style, um, which was turned into such a popular uh, merchandising tool that they actually made it a book. Huh. And it's a it's an alternate universe comic um, featuring mostly the women of the DC universe uh, during World War II. So See, they, I, oh sorry, Josh. I was just going to say I never knew there was a comic based on this. Uh, I remember when I actually worked in a comic shop, we had a bunch of the DC bombshells. Uh, statuettes and figurines and they sold out like, like the Harley one never even hit the shelf. Someone mm -hmm. knew we were getting it. And I, I want to say it sold for $250 before it even hit the shelf. Wow. Believe it. And it's been, it's been published in digital. Um, it was, it's a digital first book. Um, but it's also, I think there are two trades available now and I highly recommend it. It's super fun. I've heard it compared to DC's new frontier which I don't know that I necessarily completely agree with, but it is definitely on par with that level of that kind of base level of quality. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then we move on to the stuff that I know Marguerite Bennett best for. Uh, once again, as a Marvel fanboy, her run on a Angela queen of hell and then the uh, Secret Wars Battle World 1602 Witch Hunter Angela, which is fucking badass. It's so fun. <laughs> Her interpretation of the Angela character just is wonderful. Now, is well, and all of the Battle World stuff that goes into past eras is just so good. Is this the Angela that came out of Spawn? No, she's actually a Thor character. Oh, okay. Um. Actually, you're both right. Oh, okay. Well, all right, Yes, then. she is the Angela who came out of Spawn. She is the one thing from uh, acquiring those characters that they decided she's not going to be her own thing. We are putting her into the Marvel world. They are actually the same character, but they've retconned her origin to push her into Asgard. Oh, very cool. Oh, all right. Neat. Uh, she also took over Red Sonia from Gail Simone in 2015, 
and writes uh, what I think can safely be called the best Victorian lesbian insect-themed comic currently being written for Image. (laughs) That's a bold statement. (laughs) It's bonkers. (laughs) Um, And she is launching, she is the writer on the new Josie and the Pussycats title that is going to be launching soon, I think, either this month or next month. Are they bugs too? No. Okay. I'm well, totally hearing awesome things about Archie and Jem, I'm just going to assume that Josie and the Pussycats is going to be awesome and really hope that we have something great to come from Grape Ape. <laughs> Hong Kong Fooey. Well, Hannah, the Hanna-Barbera comics are all getting sort of a, a revamp um, pretty soon. I don't remember who it was that was throwing, throwing the titles around, but uh, yeah, like some sort of Mad Max Fury Road type deal was being talked about for those properties, which I just want you guys to let that sink in for a moment. They're doing like a a Mad Max Fury Road style wacky races. I already want it. I I think that's, I think that's a thing that's happening. Holy shit. I'm just visioning like snidely whiplash with bullets for teeth. Yes. Yeah. Ha ha. All right. So, (laughs) Kath, am I saying that right? Kath Leth? It should be Kate. Sorry, Kate. that's a typo. Okay. So. so the next three women are women that I included because earlier I was talking about um, women that started their work on the web and then got recruited by the big two based on the strength of their uh, webcomic work. Uh, Kate Leth is a Canadian comic artist who was recruited from her fan art on Tumblr by Boom Studios to write and do art for Adventure Time. Um, and is currently writing the Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat book for Marvel, which is super cute and not at all related to Patsy Walker's character on the Jessica Jones show. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say not at all. Well, not at all, but it's not tonally similar. That's fair. Yeah, because they're definitely we're taking Patsy Walker in the Hellcat direction uh, in that series as she was training like super early in her career. But yeah, th- oh, this is definitely sure. yeah, but, um, this is definitely Kate Hellcat. Lets, yeah, Kate Let's Hellcat is a little more Squirrel Girl esque. Oh, a lot say. less serious. Yeah. Um, and she is writing. I think she just finished the Vampirella reboot for Dynamite. Um. Yeah, she wrote uh, comic reviews for Comics Alliance uh, under a webcomic called Cater Die for a long time. Um, yeah, but I just I, I love I love that um, Tumblr is being used as like a professional recruitment tool. That is currently my daughter's dream. <laughs> of That's awesome. Getting recruited. In fact, she's uh, just this last week she's been she's been on pins and needles because she drew a picture of uh, Mark Player. Markiplier, and she tagged him on it, and she's waiting for some sort of response from him on it. So <laughs> she's, she's a really good picture, too. I mean, I won't I won't deny it. I'm not just saying it because it's my kid, because I actually get some crap from Suzanne on that, because like, when the girls will draw something, and I'll be like, yeah, you got their neck wrong. And Suzanne's like, why would you say that to them? I, was like, I said that to them because their neck is wrong. And the girls have reached a point where they're like, yeah, I know, I just couldn't get it right. So, practice, practice, practice. Oh, yeah. Got sketchbooks all over the house. I know that scenario. Yeah. Well, and in that theme, I'm going to temporarily skip the next name on the list just to jump to Babs Tar because I honestly don't have a lot to say about her 
except that her Sailor Moon fan art is what got her hired as the comic artist on the Batgirl of Burnside run for DC. Um, so, you know, you tell, is that um, Sophie or Katie? You got the names right. Yeah, Yeah. you got the names right. Which one were you Um, talking about? (laughs) Whichever is the comic artist. Oh, that's Katie. That's that's my older one, yeah. Yeah, so you should tell her that, you know, Babstar had never drawn a comic before until um, Brendan Fletcher saw her Sailor Moon fan out on Tumblr and said, hey, want to come work for DC? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that, and that, that blows my mind because back in the 80s, when I was doing my sketching and hoping to become a comic artist, I mean, there was like this sort of thing would have been amazing to me, you know, to be able to post stuff somewhere and just get a phone call and say, Hey, you want to draw for us? That sort of thing. So, but I'm, I'm really excited in the fact that they can actually do this sort of thing nowadays. Well, and even if that call never comes, there are so many ways to be successful as an artist now that don't involve necessarily working for the mainstream, uh, comic publishers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I think that's right the uh, the online comic scene is bigger than it's ever been right now, and it's more than just you know four panel uh, comics. It's like full on uh, like dramas and horror comics. And right now, what am I reading right now? Where'd it go? Show notes. Show notes. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm reading. Is it in the show notes? <laughs> uh, Hel- Helvetica. It's on. It's on. It's on the Hiveworks Helvetica, and there's another one uh, that's about. It's like a dark take on the Magical Girl theme. Misfits of Avalon. Uh, no. Where to it go? It's on my okay. list. My list is so long. I'm not, just bra- <laughs> I'm not just bragging there. I'm just saying, literally, this is too long for me to find all these things. But uh, but no. Um, oh, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Well, does what? anybody have anything else to say before we hit the last person that I added to our our show notes list? Uh, I I was also looking up a, a book from Image that I'm just blanking on the title of. So, so no, no go ahead, <laughs> roll with it. So the last person that I had on here is Noel Stevenson, who at the ripe old age of 24 already has a passel of Eisner Awards. Um, she got her start with her webcomic called Nimona, which has since been published by HarperCollins and is a fabulous book. Um, she co-created the Eisner Award-winning series Lumberjanes from Boom Studios, which is a little bit like if you combine Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Girl Scouts. Uh, she has written for the new Thor series for Marvel and did the Battle World Runaways which was great, huh. um, and did a story for Sensation Comics featuring Wonder Woman. Um, but yeah, she's 24 and has accomplished more than I probably will in the next 10 years. <laughs> oh. Oh, Lumberjanes is freaking amazing. Lumberjanes is so good. Sleepless Domain. That's it. That's the, sorry, that's the comic. That's, that's the okay. online one that I've been, I've been written by uh, Mary Cagle. Who also does uh, Let's Speak English? It's a mm-hmm. bio comic about her teaching English over in Japan. Um, but it's like a, a magical girl. This okay. The sound. I'm trying to phrase this in my head so it sounds better, but it's not gonna. Uh, it's a magical girl comic. But apparently, her the imagine if you're watching um, uh, Sailor Moon 
and in the first episode, all the Sailor Moon get violently torn apart by one of the monsters, and there's only one left. And it's all about how this, this single girl deals with the fact that her entire team got torn apart in front of her. I think it. Yeah, good stuff. So, so we have any closing comments on this one, Josh? Um, or- I wanted to mention the small press people real fast because I I think that you know we've done a we've done a good job of comprehensively covering some of the big names, um, the big women in comics, but the small press scene is sort of explosive right now. Uh, there's a woman named uh, Spike Trotman who is single-handedly changing the shape of how comics are made. Um, she kickstarts her books and books for other people and has basically built her publishing house up using Kickstarter as her tool. Um, and is, like I said, she, she and other, other women in the small press scene are, are changing, uh, the landscape for women in comics. So there's no longer this, this sense that in order to make it to be a professional in comics, you have to go through Marvel or DC, and I think that it's female characters who are real creators, not characters. They're real people. <laughs> <laughs> female creators who are kind of leading that charge right now. That's awesome. Because I think one of the reasons why we wanted to steer away from too much focus on the uh, small press is there is in the comic neckbeard circles this whole stereotype of the little like almost zine style comics all about like lesbian superheroes or whatever that only appear at these tiny cons. And that's the role of women in the comics industry. And that's a really negative shitty way to look at it. And there are these things that aren't Marvel or DC, but are also relevant and really cool. So I'm glad to hear the flip side of that horrible stereotype. Yeah, I mean, a woman that I follow on Tumblr just kickstarted volume two of her webcomic. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh. That funded to the tune of $90,000 in 36 hours. So, you know, women are being successful in comics. It's just not always in the places that people kind of think of as being the legitimate places. Right. And that's, that's such a shitty way to look at it, where if it, it's almost a perception that if it's not the big two, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, that's. Uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's in the same thing that I was saying before. It's like it just because you know you you've got the big two, or if you toss image, maybe even the big three in there. You know, you've got these uh, preconceived notions, like you said. If it's if you're not working for Marvel, if you're not working for DC, you're not really in comics. But I think with the trans, you know, the, the way everything has transitioned from paper to digital and being able to access and draw and post stuff is so much easier nowadays that there's almost a th- almost like a third sphere of comics on this now nowadays where it's the the digital the the t- the tumblr the uh the posts on uh deviant art and that sort of thing where people are getting their feet wet and getting accolades for what they do on the digital realm also. And I think a lot of the pushback from the traditional old guard, especially when you talk uh, about like newspaper comics versus web comics, there is an element of sexism there 
where it's like, if you're going to legitimize this other format, that isn't how you came up. You also have to legitimize the people working in that format. And that's not something they want to do. Well, and it's interesting. People always talk about how a, um, a comic that's being published as a floppy uh, lives and dies by its monthly sales, which is true. Um, but when you have a book like Miss Marvel, which is Marvel's highest selling digital book, uh, it you know starts to call into question, well, how valid is the floppy format anymore? Or not valid, but how relevant is the floppy format anymore? That's a really good question, because if younger people are frequently going digital and people of our generation, the, the Gen Xers are saying, well, I'm not going to buy the individual issues. I'll wait for the trades. What role does the individual issue have in comics right now? Well, right now for Marvel and DC, I mean, you can wait for the trades, but if the floppies don't sell, it kills the book. Uh, that's I, no matter how legit that is, um, I think it's dumb. I happen to, I buy them, but I think monthly floppies are dumb. Um, but they're, they're sticking to this method, even though it's becoming archaic. Well, I mean, it's, I don't think the, the trade, I mean, not the trade, but I don't think that the monthly comics are ever going to go away. I mean, it's, it's with Marvel, the, like the Marvel Comics app and all the other, uh, you know, ways to digitally absorb your comics. They're going to take a big chunk of that. But I don't think that these, those, I guess you're calling the floppies, are going to go, they're going to disappear. I have a question for you then, Mike, as a Marvel Unlimited subscriber. What would happen if... Uh, first-run comics were didn't have the six-month or a year gap that they have between now and Marvel Unlimited. I wonder if your statement would still be true, or if th- the main reason that they have that year, six-month, a year, year-and-a-half gap is because they're afraid that the floppies would disappear if uh, you could day one get everything digitally. Well, but the problem with that is, is that you've got too many people that want the physical copy. They want the, the totem. They want the, the, the thing to put in their house and have their collection. And if you have that digital format, sure, you got it on a hard drive somewhere or whatever, or it's on a cloud, or you can pull it up on the Marvel site, but you don't have that hard copy that you can hold on to. There's that, not that collectability, and that's never going to go away. The record industry set the template for that, and they've proven that no matter how much you know, the independent artists can create music on their own and sell it and put it out there digitally. There's always going to be those people that want the vinyl copy or the, the CD copy of it. And it's the same thing that's happening now with the comics. And eventually they'll, they'll go the same route that the, the music industry has. And, um, it's never going to go away, even if they get rid of that six month gap. Yeah. I huh. agree with, I, agree I, I with almost Joel. wonder. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, cause I, I mean, it's, it, while it's cool, like with books, it's cool to have a copy of a book on my Kindle or a copy of a book on my tablet and be able to read it on the train or whenever. But there is always something nice to about having a physical copy of of the book, whether it be a trade or whether it be you know a floppy monthly. It's uh, <laughs> never mind. Okay, there was a joke there. I totally passed right <laughs> yeah. over that. Derailed yourself with yeah, it. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I think I think there's always going to be that attraction to having that physical copy. I mean, because it's as human beings, we are we like to have things, and being able to say, "Oh, I've got you know twenty gig of 
comic books on my hard drive is cool, but I mean to be able to say, oh here, check it out, here is you know, this this uh Captain America comic that came out twenty years ago in my hands right here. I mean, there's just a different experience around collecting the physical comics as there is uh versus the uh the digital side. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. But I also think that monthly floppies I think their lifespan right now is measured precisely in how long comic shops continue to exist. They said that about the record store industry, though, too, and they've outlasted a lot of the big box stores because there's those people that want to fetishize it and want to have it. I'm one of those people, um, and they're always going to keep those people in business. They may get smaller, and they may get more diverse in what they carry in their store, but they're never going away. I wonder, Joel, if you can imagine a world where the physical monthly comic book doesn't sort of occupy the role that the Chase variant covers have now, where, yeah, they are available for the people that got to have them, but they become a premium item that keep those niche stores alive. And granted, I could be biased because I am unusually, for someone of our generation, uh, open to digital content. I haven't bought a CD, a DVD, an individual comic book, TV show, whatever in years. Everything's digital for me. Kindle, streaming, etc. Or you could well, take the blue pill and the story ends. And you- <laughs> but working, in a, but working in, a, in a record store and running a record store when digital media hit the the beginning of its of its birthplace and everybody calling for the death of the record industry and everything was going to be digital and you're no longer going to have stores. I found that the opposite has happened. Uh, record stores, final CDs are, are just as big as they were. They may not be the m- big money item that they used to be back in the, the early nineties, late eighties, whatever, but they're still around and they don't show any signs of going anywhere. And, and vinyl, which they've said was a dead media for how long is more popular now than it was 30 years ago. Well, and your point about vinyl is what made me think that I could see a world where the physical copies are the chase items. They are the ones that are for the hardcore collectors. They're, like I said, they occupy the same role variants do today. I could see that happening. I just wonder if as a mass market, this is the number one way, as far as the company is concerned, that people experience this media, if that's still going to be true in five or ten years. I don't know that it would be the number one method, but it's it's something that it's not ever going to disappear. Though there's always going to be that that desire to have that physical copy. Um, and I mean, any even the artists that have gone to, you know, the the pledge music or the kickstarters, they still release those physical copies too because they know that there's a demand for it. Just and they do it equally with the the MP3 or the downloads. And I think comics are probably they're they're kind of just now kind of getting into that that methodology, but I, I could see it ending up in the same place where the record industry is now. I know what you're well, talking about, Joel. There's no way I'm ever going to give up my Lady in the Tramp picture disc. <laughs> Why would you? That's right. Alright, and to bring us full circle, I can say this for sure, is whatever form comics are going to be in 5, 10, 20 years, we can say that definitely uh women are going to be involved in the development of the direction. And that's a positive thing. I think that's an obvious statement considering our perspective of the last couple hours, but I think it's worth saying, and it's not something you necessarily hear 
middle-aged white dude saying. Well, and they've taken the fact that they've been kind of shunned from the industry because of it's a boys club and they've found other avenues and they're eventually going to, they're taking it in that direction that it needed to go anyway. And it's, they're going to overtake that. Right. Well, I want to uh, give a call out and a thank you to Martha for hanging out with us for this, uh, this show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been super fun. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything you want to plug? I wouldn't give away any of your projects that you wouldn't want known to the uh, podcasting audience at large. But if there's anything you want people to be able to read or otherwise experience that's yours, now is the time to say it. Well, I'm super lazy, which is why I'm really glad <laughs> that you guys have given me the chance to fulfill my dreams of doing a podcast without actually having to do any of the work of doing a podcast. <laughs> um, mostly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Magical Martha, all one word. Um, I occasionally tweet comic-related things. Um, today, I tweeted extensively about the new TV show Pitch, which I thought was A+. Um, and I Instagram a lot of photos of my guinea pigs. So if any of those things sound relevant, you should follow me on social media. Um, <laughs> I'm always down All for right. guinea pig pictures. All right. So next week, what do we have on tap? The thing. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Is clobber in time? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is clobber in time. It will be. Uh, we're going to do our, what is it? Third annual Octobu. Yes. Oh, boy. In fact, I, I properly hyphenated it this time, so I wasn't calling it Octobu. Thank it's you. Octobu. Uh, yeah, it sounds it's, like uh, some sort of bizarre octopus. Yes, yeah. scary. Boo! <laughs> no, um, we're doing the thing. We're watching the original. Well, not the original. We're watching the 1983. Yeah, Six. the John Carpenter. John Carpenter uh, classic. And I'm going to say that with great enthusiasm. And uh, oh, then 82. we're carrying oh, wow. it to the 2011 sequel. Yes. To yeah. That. Well. So. Prequel, technically. Prequel, sequel, next well, movie also involved with the thing. thing. Oh, no. If you have anything uh, you want to say about this show or our previous shows, something you wanted to add, something you thought we glossed over or missed, you can always reach us at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yes, and if you'd like to email us, we're 40go14 at gmail.com. You can also find us on our home on the web at 40go14.com. Uh, find our older shows, find some uh, commentary on there. You can also go on Facebook, look for 40 Going On 14 Podcast, and that is us. All right. Cool. Huh, who knew? Pop Rocks can expire. Yuck.